Today we bring to a close a series that uh, we've been about a month. We've been thinking about how our culture tells us over and over in all kinds of ways that more is always better. More of whatever we like, whether it's money or cars or homes or stuff or anything else, more is always better. And we've been turning to God's word to dispel that myth because it really is a myth. Uh, the, the stuff that the world offers us ends up leaving us empty. And so we've been thinking through what God says he offers us and how he really offers us more than the world could ever offer us. So we've thought about how God is at work in our lives in a multitude of ways. We've talked about how we deal with it sometimes when God tells us no. Last Sunday we talked about what we do when God says yes and how we respond to that. And today I want us to come at this from one more angle and think about sort of where we started with all this at the very beginning of the series, our stuff. Now our stuff is really important to us, right? Whether we have a lot of it or a little of it, our stuff matters to us because it's valuable. It holds inherent financial value, but it also is valuable to us because many of the things that we own carry with them memories, right? Memories of someone who's gone, memories of someone we love. And we have those things that have been given to us, will to us, whatever. And even if they're of little or no monetary value, they're important to us because of the memories that are associated with that object. It sometimes makes us feel valuable to have certain things as well. So all that's tied up in our stuff, but our stuff, and it has a lot to do with our relationship with God. And our ability to handle it in the right way is all about trust. And we're going to think about that today, how our trust in God really does dictate how we understand our stuff. Because our relationship with God and our relationship with our stuff really are tightly linked together. So I want us to think about that. But some things get in the way of our trust in God when it comes to our stuff. And I can think of four. There's probably a lot more than that. But one of them is, is that many people have been through a time of financial stress, right? I mean, you've been through a time when there was struggle. And you know what it's like when you're trying to make ends meet and they are just not meeting, right? There's just not really enough to go around to do everything that has to be done. And that is really tough. It creates all kinds of strain on us as individuals. You might remember it caused strain on your marriage or your family. And it was really, really difficult. And you look back on that, that difficult time, and it colors how you understand your stuff today. And it can color whether or not you trust in God and how much trust you're willing to put in God. So the fact that we've spent time in a difficult time financially makes a difference on whether we can trust God. Second, some people trust only themselves. Okay, there are some people in the room who want to be in control. You want to be in control of all of life, how you, how you work, how you spend your time, what your family's doing, and you want to be in control of your money, of your stuff. And so when someone like me stands in a place like this and says, all of your life should be surrendered to God, you're fine with that until we get to your checkbook, right? And then it's uncomfortable. You don't want to do that. Because you've got certain goals, you've set them, you're ready, you're pursuing those goals, you're on track, but you're not sure if you're ready to trust God with what belongs to you. And so that keeps you from really having the relationship with God that you want to have. Some people wonder, 
how much is enough? And there are people in the room who are going, I've never had that problem, right? Enough, too much has never been an issue for me. But for some people, they're thinking that. Like, what's the number? What, what's the amount that you need in the bank? And that would be, you know, you wouldn't need another dollar the rest of your life if you had this much in the bank. For most of us, that's always going to be just a little more, right? Just a little more. Just a little more house. Just a little nicer car. Maybe a vacation home. Maybe at least a you know, timeshare, if it doesn't have to be our own. But the point is, we always want a little more. And how do we know when enough is enough? Like, where do you go in the Bible to find out how much money you should have in the bank and then you don't need any more? There's really not any answer to that specific question anywhere in this book. And we might even say this book was written, wow, 2,000 years ago at the least, and much of it older than that. So they lived in a different way than we do in, in a pretty wealthy culture. How does that, what the Bible says, really speak to us in a world that is so very different? So what do these biblical answers say to us anyway? And then some people just really struggle to part with anything that they own. I mean, maybe it's because financial stress in the past. Maybe just because there's stuff they really like. Maybe they're just worried about the future. But it's hard to, to give anything away because you're so attached to the things you have. And even though it's been in the attic, the garage, or the basement for 15 years and you haven't seen it, you still know it's there, right? And if you needed it, you could go, well, you might be able to find it anyway, right? So all these things can keep us from trusting God with our stuff. <clears throat> what does the Bible actually have to say about this? Well, we're not going to find those amounts. We're not going to find specific answers to our questions. But I do think what we can find is some biblical principles that help us understand how our relationship with God speaks to how we handle our stuff. And to do that today, I want us to turn to Psalm 95. Now, Psalm 95 is a great psalm, okay? It's one that my guess is will at least sound vaguely familiar because it's a psalm that's used in a lot of churches, maybe not on a weekly basis, but at least a monthly basis as a call to worship. So you walk in and the first thing you hear are the words of a psalm like this. And sometimes Psalm 95 is that psalm. In some churches, it's used right before the message, okay, as a call to hear the Word of God. And we've even used it in our worship services at times. So maybe not one that you could quote or be able to say, oh, I know that's from Psalm 95, but you might at least think, yeah, I think I remember those words. And what we hear is in this call to worship, an understanding of how our relationship with God affects our relationship with our stuff. So let's hear what the psalm has to say. There's no prologue, no psalm of David, no this is when it was written. It just jumps into this call to worship. So Psalm 95 verse 1, Come, let us sing for joy to Yahweh, the Lord. That's the Old Testament name for God, the personal name for this specific God, not just a God and all the gods around Israel, but the one true God. Come, let us sing for joy to Yahweh. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. So the psalmist says, this God is worth worshiping. This one specific God who is 
the rock of our salvation. We can depend on this God like we can depend on nothing else because He is like a rock, solid, firm. We can build our lives on this particular God. And because of all those things that God is, He deserves our worship. And, and we've come to this room today for worship. That's why we're here. And so this psalm speaks to us as we've gathered in this place to worship this same God who created all things and, and to express our praise to Him. So it speaks to us just like it spoke to them. But the question is, for what specific reasons should we worship this one God? And the psalmist answers that beginning in verse 3. For Yahweh is the great God, a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Someone says, if there was a great assembly of all the gods of the peoples who surrounded Israel in the middle of that assembly, and they didn't believe in all those gods, but if there were those gods, the one who would stand first and foremost above every other god would be Yahweh. This one true God. Greater than anything that they can imagine. Greater than any other God. And why do we worship Him? Because it's as if He can hold even the mountain peaks in His hand. Why? Well, the next verse gets to it. Because He created it all. He is the Creator. We go back to Genesis 1 and 2 where God brings everything into being. So it's not just that this one true God, Yahweh, is master of all creation. It's not that He stands just above and outside beyond creation. Even more than that, it's because this God made it all. And that begins to speak to how we understand the stuff around us and the stuff that we own. In the end, it's not ours. Who does it belong to? It belongs to this God that we worship. Why? Because He made it. And we know the truth. I mean, the truth is, the old saying goes, you can't take it with you. And you know what? You can't. There is nothing that you can take from this life into death. No physical object that you can take into the life beyond. We're going to leave it all behind. Every bit of it. And it reminds us that even though there's lots of things that are in our homes and things that might be in our name, somewhere there's a piece of paper that has a serial number and our name on it. And so that object, that thing, that car, whatever it is, it belongs to me. It's mine. Well, yeah, but it's really not. Because in the end, we're all going to leave it behind. Every bit of it. And so if we want a proper understanding of the stuff that we have, we're really more caretakers than anything else. I read a book recently, and, and the author's father was a, like a world-renowned violinist. And for much of his career, he played a Stradivarius violin. <clears throat> These are hundreds of years old, legendary. They cost millions of dollars. Ended up being stolen. They recovered it later. But that's really not the story. The, the point is, she said, these great violinists who play Stradivarius violins, it's as if they see themselves as caretakers. 
I mean, they're already hundreds of years old. And yes, they, they go out and buy these violins. And you're going to play it for a matter of decades, but at some point, either you're going to sell it or your heirs are going to sell it and some other great violinist is going to play that violin for their career and pass it on. It, it doesn't really belong to anyone. They're just passed along. They're cared for, used, passed along. And that's the way it is with all of our stuff. I mean, whatever it is you have, at some point is going to either be important to someone else and pass to them, or it's going to end up in the landfill, okay? It just is. Whatever stuff we got belongs to God, and, and we're caring for the stuff that He owns. And, and if we're the caretakers, then we need to handle it in a way that pleases the owner. He goes a little further in verse 6. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before Yahweh, our Maker. Yahweh, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. So it's not just the stuff that I have that belongs to God. It's that I owe my very self to God. I mean, what I am made of is God's. He is God, my maker. And it's as if he's caring for us. This picture of a shepherd caring for his sheep. All right? So God cares for us. He loves us. But, but it's because he made us. He made us all exactly who we are. So I'm a little bit different from everyone in the room. And you're a little bit different from everyone else in the room. God made us unique. And he loves us. But we even owe our very selves to God. Now, the usage of this psalm, most of the time if it's read in a worship service or some kind of devotion or whatever it is, we cut it off there. Because this first part is all sort of feel-good stuff. It's about how great God is. And maybe it's a little challenging when we think about our stuff. But, but we like to stop it there, and it's, it's almost as if we forget the rest of it is even in existence, but here it is, and it's just as powerful as the first part, but maybe a little more difficult to hear. So beginning at the end of verse 7, today, if you would only hear his voice, and then everything changes. Up to then, it's this praise psalm, and now God's speaking, and it's a warning. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah. As you did that day at Massa in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. And then it ends. I say, well, that's no fun, right? That's not pleasant at all. We have all this feel-good stuff, and then God starts talking about people who disobeyed. But really, the story that, that God is referring to goes back to the time when, 
when he had called his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt, had made them into a people, his chosen people, led them out into the desert, preparing them for the land of promise. And they get out in the middle of the desert and they want, run out of one resource that is absolutely necessary for life. Water. And so you got thousands upon thousands of people in the middle of the wilderness with no water. And Scripture says they began to quarrel with Moses, who was their leader. And they said to Moses, how in the world could you do this to us? Now, you're the one who led us out of slavery, out of Egypt, out here in the middle of the wilderness, and you didn't even think about whether we were going to have enough water or not. It was better when we were back in Egypt being owned by other people because at least they gave us enough water to survive. God was angry in that moment. And there's another story sort of similar to that as they come to the promised land and they're not prepared to go into the promised land. God's angry at that. And God's angry for one simple reason. They didn't trust him. They just refused to trust God. And the message in both of those stories seems to be, why in the world would God lead them out of Egypt? Why would he go to all this trouble, 10 plagues and these sort of interchange with Pharaoh and all this struggle? Why would he do all that and then let them die in the desert? And his question is, don't you trust me? And those events in the desert sort of become legendary for a massive failure of trust in God. And they are referred to through the old, whole Old Testament because of this failure. And though this part of the psalm is a warning, it's not pleasant, it's the same message that we find in the rest of the psalm which is really pretty simple, and it's all about trust. God is always worthy of our trust. It all belongs to God anyway. I mean, what we have is provided by God for our use, and it's up to us how we're going to use it. Are we going to use it in a way that pleases God, or are we going to use it in a way that pleases me? Remember, I'm not going to be able to take it with me, so am I going to please the one who made it and blesses me, or is it going to be all about me? And the message of Scripture, certainly the Psalms, and this is not the only one, we get the same message in Proverbs, and it shows up in the New Testament as well. God's worthy of our trust. We need to trust in Him to have the right relationship with our stuff. You see, our trust in God, our relationship with God, affects how we understand our stuff. Now, there's some really practical ways to put this into practice. First of all, we've got to trust God to provide. Now, sometimes that, that's hard. If we've been through a difficult time financially or if we really like to be in control ourselves, it is hard to say, okay, I'm going to surrender this area of my life to God. I don't want to do it. But what the psalmist is saying is this is a God who is worthy of your trust. So trust him to provide for your needs. And over and over, God does that. Now, for lots of us, we can remember a time when, man, it was close, right? You were not sure how you were going to have enough. 
God provided. Over and over, God provided. But we have to take this into some other practical areas too. Sometimes it's trust God enough to receive help. Now, for many of us in the room, we're not interested in help. We want to be in control. We want to have a plan. We want to work that plan. And if we need help, that must mean somehow we've failed, right? I've done it wrong if I need help. That's a sign that either I don't know enough, haven't worked hard enough, haven't done enough. I've failed. And that's a lie. Because we all need help at certain times in our lives. And sometimes the way that God provides The way that God is worthy of our trust is that he provides the help we need at the right time. But then we have to receive it. We have to say, okay, I'm going to be humble enough to allow somebody to bless me. I don't like doing that. And yet, sometimes that's exactly what we need to do. You see, we serve a giving God, a God who provided for our very deepest need forgiveness of sin, eternal life. Through Jesus, I could never do that on my own. If, I'm gonna, if I think I'm going to provide everything I need in life, I'm going to fail from the beginning because I can't meet that need. So sometimes this means we trust God enough to receive help. And sometimes it means we trust God enough to give. Now, that can really be a challenge because when we give whether it's to the church or to some charity that we really feel strongly about or to some body who's really in need. When we give, what we're doing is we're giving the stuff, giving the money, but we're also giving up control. Because we're saying this, it belongs to me right now. It's in my bank account. It's in my wallet. It's mine. And when I give... I'm saying it it belongs to someone else now. It it is not in my control. I cannot use it. It doesn't make me feel secure anymore. It belongs to someone else. That's why we call it an offering, just like the Old Testament. When they bring some kind of animal and offer it to God, we're saying this is not mine anymore. We, We give money. It is not mine anymore. And there's a real surrender there. And it can be a challenge. And what it requires is trust. It requires us to trust that God's going to continue to provide. That God will use what he's given us when we give it back. And that he'll take care of it. And that he'll do something good with it. But it all goes back to trust. Now we're going to have a special offering here in a little bit. And I'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But... But it requires from us a willingness to say, I'm taking care of what's God's. I'm giving part of it back. And I'm doing it because he is always and forever worthy of my trust. Let's pray together. God, sometimes we need a little bit of help. We need help trusting And remind us of the moments when we were desperate and we cried out for help and you provided. God, remind us of the examples of your faithfulness. 
Help us to see over and over that you are worthy of our trust. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.